This morning, the Bible readings from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, and it is also printed in your bulletin. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. This is God's word. Okay, thank you, Tracy, for uh, leading us in prayer and reading um, this morning. We're, uh, we're in Advent season, but we're still in Genesis because we are, we are finishing up. We're very close to the end of a series that we've been calling The True Story of the World. We're, uh, looking, at, um, we're looking at these earliest chapters in the book of Genesis, basically Genesis 1 through 11, to understand a little bit better how to live in the world today as followers of Jesus Christ. And that might seem a little bit strange to you uh, that we would go to Genesis to understand how to live as followers of Jesus Christ. But the reason we're doing that is because these stories in the earliest books of Genesis, scholars who are religious or non-religious have come to realize are foundational for understanding the way the world works and why things are the way they are. And in order for us to live properly in the world that God has put us in, it's good for us to understand why the world is the way it is. And so that's why we have been looking at these chapters for the last number of weeks together. And today, we're kind of near the end of the story, right? We're at the Tower of Babel story. And this story is like a bookend to these chapters because the story of the Tower of Babel actually parallels the story of the fall in Eden. You'll remember back in Genesis chapter 3, we looked at the, that story in depth. We spent a few weeks on it. And what we, what, what, what we discover as we read the story of the Tower of Babel and the story uh, in up against the story of the fall in Eden is we discover, first of all, they happen in the, basically the same place, this place that is Shinar. If you want to turn that around, you can do that too. You need it to be really elevated. You're good? Okay. Sorry. Just a little side conversation between me and a, a worship leader here. Uh, sorry. Um, it's a bad habit of mine. I get distracted. Squirrel! Um, this place called Shinar is believed to be in the area of Mesopotamia where Eden was believed to be. We can't know that for sure, but there's good reasons to think that these were uh, the same area. The issue is the same. 
So you have uh, Adam and Eve seeking to be like God, and what looks like these people who are building at Shinar uh, are trying to be like God, and the result is the same. You get banishment from the presence of God, you get banishment from the place where you are at, and you're spreading out. And so it looks like these stories have been placed this way in order to emphasize that fact, that they are bookends to the whole Genesis 1 through 11 section of the book of Genesis. And on the face of it, this story of the Tower of Babel, uh, it seems pretty simple. It, it looks like another story of human pride, right? Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God, and now the people at Shinar, they want to be like God. It seems like another story of rebellion and disobedience because God had told Adam and Eve that they were supposed to fill the earth and multiply and Noah, when he got off the ark, he was told that he was supposed to fill the earth and multiply. And now here, once again, people are failing to do what God said. They're not spreading out and filling the earth. And therefore, uh, again, it looks like a simple story of disobedience that God has to deal with. And, and it's true that that, that that is happening in this story. But that's not all that's happening in this story. Remember that we've been saying over and over and over again that to understand these chapters well, you've got to remember who the first audience is. Who's the first audience hearing this story? The first audience hearing this story is the nation of Israel who had spent 400 years in Egypt and had been growing and multiplying and becoming a nation, but they had lived like slaves and then God had rescued them out of Egypt and he was taking them through the desert on this journey to another land where he was going to establish them. And so this audience along the way, these people of Israel, they're in a sense, you could say they're being reintroduced, air quotes, because I don't know how else to put it, but they're being reintroduced to the God of Scripture and the true God of the world. So this story, along with the other stories in Genesis, is meant to orient these Israelites to this God that they have known in, in a vague way, but had sort of lost sight of in any concrete way over the centuries that they had been slaves. And, and it was meant to reprogram them. Because they, for, remember this, they had spent four centuries, I don't know how many generations that is, is, that, is it like 25 years as a generation, so, four, so, so 16 generations, they had spent 16 generations anyway, living under one kingdom, this kingdom of Egypt that had its own way of doing things, its own value system, its own program for what it was trying to accomplish, and now they're being introduced to this different kingdom, the kingdom of God. And they need to understand that this kingdom of God has different priorities than the kingdom that they had spent so many centuries in. So, so that's actually a big part of what this story, Genesis 11, is all about. And we're going to look at four or five things, a whole bunch of things. You can see them in the back of, of uh, the bulletin and the sermon outline. We're going to look at the agenda, the project, the offense, the response, and the takeaway for us as we study this story together. Okay, first of all, the agenda. What these people at Shinar who have gathered together, what are they actually trying to do? It says in verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? So that we may make a name for ourselves. 
Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. So the agenda of these people is to make a name for themselves. Now, again, you got to remember the backdrop is having just come out of Egypt. So what does it mean to make a name for themselves? It means to build an empire. They had just come out of an empire like Egypt, and now they're, they're hearing the story of how sort of the empire-building project had begun. And so these people at Shinar, when they got together and they said, let's build this city and this temple, this tower together, let's make a name for themselves, what they were saying is, let's make our own empire. And a, an Old Testament scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann, who has studied these kinds of, of, of passages for a long time, he says, you know, uh, there's a pattern for empires in the Old Testament uh, that, uh, that they're trying to accomplish basically three major things. They're basically trying to accomplish discovering infinite knowledge or controlling infinite knowledge or experiencing infinite knowledge so that they can do away with all mystery. They want to amass infinite power so that they can have complete security and they can uh, control and dominate others. And they're trying to gain infinite wealth so that they can have whatever their hearts desire. But here's the thing about an empire. Every time you try to build an empire, what you're doing is, is you are using others, you are collecting others, and using them, whoops, a new watch fell off. Using them as tools to accomplish your empire building project. Remember, so the Israelites, they're listening to Moses tell the story and they're discovering, aha, see, that's exactly what we experienced. We sat under the, the, the rule of Egypt and because of the rule of Egypt over, over us, uh, using us, they were able to build their empire on our backs. So empire building is always self-interest at the expense of others. You necessarily oppress others in your empire building project. Okay? I got to get my activity steps so that I can eat a lot at lunch. So I got to put this back on. So that's point number one. What was the agenda? Number two, the project. What's the project? Okay. So the way they're going to accomplish this empire building thing is they're going to apparently build this tower and build this city. Again, in verse 4, uh, verse, or, yeah, verse four it says, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. So they're going to build a city and they're going to build a tower. So remember, we talked about this before. Cities are not like metropolitans that we think about today. Cities were basically walled settlements for safety. They were not necessarily humongous, didn't necessarily have massive populations, although that is eventually where they're trying to get with, with this city. But the, the real key is the tower that reaches to the heavens. When we think of tower, we think like CN Tower. Or we think of, you know, that massive hotel tower in Dubai or something like that, right? This kind of things you see on, on action movies. But that's not the tower that they were talking about. What they were talking about was something called a ziggurat. Now, a ziggurat, you got a picture, picture kind of like an Egyptian pyramid, except that going up, the slope is not flat. The slope goes like this, 
like that, okay? You follow? Kind of like it was made out of Lego, Lego by your kids. And in somewhere in that, that pyramid, that ziggurat, there was actually a stairway or a staircase or, or a ladder type thing, okay? And at the top of this ziggurat would be a room. And in that room, there would be a bed and there would be a table and that would be a place for the gods, okay? And we know that this was a place for the gods because the steps were always too big for actually people to climb. Like if you tried to climb these steps, they would be like way too big. And the idea was, was that gods were much bigger and much stronger than us. And so the stairway was for the gods, in fact, to come down. And at the bottom of this ziggurat thing would actually be a temple. And the gods would come down the temple. So this was the place where heaven and earth met. This was a stairway to heaven. But it was actually a, more of a stairway from heaven because the people who went up and down that stairway were actually the gods, not people. Now, you're asking yourself, what on earth does that have to do with empire building? Brilliant question. And it has everything to do with empire building. This is point number three. The offense. Up until now, when you read Genesis 1 through 11... All the discussion about the things that humanity is doing is about them committing terrible acts of violence, them committing terrible acts of sin, them being corrupted, okay? So it's all about the activity of humankind and what they're actually doing in terms of committing sin and breaking God's law, etc. But now, here in Genesis 11 what you discover is, is that it's more about how their view of God is becoming distorted. See, with Adam and Eve, the problem was, was that they had fallen for the serpent's trick and they had said, you know what, it would be great to be like God. And so they ate the fruit in order to be like God, right? But here in Genesis 11, they're not actually trying to be like God. They're actually trying to bring God down and make God like them. And this is the first time in the biblical story that this happens. In other words, what we're saying here is, at Babel, humankind is trying to recast God with a human nature. Trying to make God like them. Trying to make God just sort of like a superhuman. A little bit more like uh, Thor in the Marvel movies and less like the sovereign God of the universe who reigns and rules over everything. Or even make him maybe more like Thanos, you know, because Thanos is, is, is not all-powerful, but he's almost all-powerful. Sorry if this doesn't work for all you non-Marvel people, but how can you be a non-Marvel person? They're such fun movies. So the idea is, is that, that you're bringing God down. And if you can bring God down and, to, and, bring, and make God have kind of a, a, a semi-human nature, so to speak, or, or just to make him sort of a, a superhuman, then he needs to be fed, he needs to be clothed, he needs to be housed. That it means that you can influence God. It means you can control God. It means if you humanize God, that you can bargain with God, right? 
if you make the right sacrifices, if you make sure you have your ziggurat placed in the right place and have the right uh, religious ceremonies and all that kind of stuff uh, surrounding your, or, 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 or the trappings, I should say, surrounding your God relationship, then what you get to do is, is you get to enlist God into your empire-building plan. Think about it. Let's use the Marvel comic theme again because it's working for me. You have a bully at school and you want to beat that bully at school. And so you make friends somehow with Thor. And you take Thor, kids. You take Thor to school with you and you go up to that bully who you have been terrified with all your life because they're bigger than you and stronger than you and meaner than you. But now you have Thor standing behind you and you say, hey, what's up? It's time to have a different conversation than you and I typically have because I now have Thor on my team. And so the idea was, was that if we can bring the gods down, if we do humanize them, if we make them sort of like us, but make them super strong, then what we get to do is, is we get to use God for our purposes, for our ends. And this, this is actually a description of the birth of paganism. Now you, when you think of paganism, probably, you think of things like, like nature worship, right, you know, women with really long hair, with flowers in their hair, wearing white, and men uh, wearing white robes and barefoot in a clearing in the forest and doing incantations and stuff. You either think of that when you think of paganism, or you just think of, uh, what's another thought of paganism? Kind of polytheism, right? People having lots of little, little idols that they burn incense to and that kind of thing. Well, that's not really the root of paganism. The root of paganism is, in fact, the degradation of God. See, paganism, whether it's manifested in nature worship or in burning incense to little idols or whatever, paganism at root is reductionistic. It, it dilutes God's character. It dilutes God's nature. It makes God less God and more like us, more like the created order. Paganism is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 when he says, They neither glorified God nor gave him thanks, but they made him to look like images of man and animals, etc. So here's the two things going on here in this story. You have this empire-building project uh, through oppression, using the people of Israel, right, or using other people to accomplish it, and you have the recasting of God in human nature. So that leads to number four, the response. So God responds, it says, by confusing their language. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building, verse six. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. This is a description, Moses is describing the human race as though it is again hurtling towards a Genesis 6 situation. 
where the wickedness has gotten so bad and, and it's so horrible and it's so terrible that God, uh, he actually wiped out the human race. But the difference here is, is that a true and proper understanding of God was beginning to be lost in the human race. So this God who is God alone and who is sovereign over everything, who is all-powerful and has no pretenders to a throne, and this God who cannot be manipulated, who cannot be conjoled, who cannot be used for our purposes, this God was disappearing in the, the minds and the hearts of the human race. And that's why he says, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them, what he's basically saying is their potential for evil will be limitless. There will be no limit to what they could do with this evil empire-building, God-using propensity that they're developing. And you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting that you notice at the beginning of the story, it says, come, Let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Moses actually goes out of his way to explain the building materials that they use. He said, Yo, by the way, they did not use stone. They used bricks. Now there's a whole side, very interesting thing going on here where Moses is basically, he's slamming their use of bricks in part because it's a, it's a, a sub, what's the word? subpar building material in comparison to stones. But what's very interesting is, is that Moses and the Israelites, they know a lot about bricks, don't they? When they were in Egypt, that was their job. Make bricks. And make them out of mud, and we're going to reduce the straw count, content or whatever, and they were oppressed and, and, and used by the Egyptians to, make the, to build this empire as an empire of bricks. And so they've gotten a taste. You see, the Israelites had gotten a taste of where the Tower of Babel was going when these brick-making uh, pagans were building their super highway to heaven. And so God in a very simple kind of direct act, he puts a stop to their anti-kingdom building. And by the way, um, to confuse their language, that in the original Hebrew language, this, this is one of those places where knowing Hebrew really helps because to confuse is actually a play on the word for brick in Hebrew. And so what, what Moses is saying is, is that God bricked their plans. He threw a brick in it. And so in a real sense, actually, the Tower of Babel was a curse. Because it was a, a, a way in which the, the unified world was de-unified. Disunity came about. God is saying no to their temple building project. But what is fascinating is, is that even though it's a curse here for a preventative person to purpose to protect the world from, from losing two things. One, the opportunity for human beings not to be seen as cogs in the empire building of the elites. 
but also for the real God of the Bible who is sovereign and described the way he is in Scripture to be lost, even, even though that is a curse and it, 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 on, on those people, one chapter later, just one chapter later, it turns into a blessing. And if you want to know how that works out, you got to come back next week. But here's the thing. Fast forward centuries. And this promise that God makes in the next chapter where he says, I will make Abraham a blessing to all the nations. I will accomplish not through the uh, oppressive means of the, of the empire of, of Genesis 11, but through my kingdom empire, I will accomplish the very thing that they were looking for, but it will be vastly different and vastly more beautiful and vastly more egalitarian. It gets fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the irony is this. In Genesis 11, humankind was building a stairway to, to try to bring God down. But centuries later, God did that very thing. This is the start of Advent, right? This is the the beginning of the remembrance of, of the coming of Jesus Christ, who Scripture called what? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us, right? It means God with us. So God did the very thing that they were trying to make happen. God did it himself. But here's the thing. When God finally came down in the person of Jesus Christ, we didn't receive him. We rejected him. Because he wouldn't come according to our desires. We couldn't manipulate him. When he came, the people tried to manipulate him. They tried to enlist him into their cause. They wanted him to overthrow the Romans. They wanted him to to bring about the the grand utopian vision of the ancients who who thought we were going to return back to the days of David when we were the nation that everybody envied. And he said, I'm not here to do that. My kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is not a physical kingdom. It is not a geographical graphical kingdom but it is a cosmic kingdom and the amazing thing about it is is that when Jesus died on that cross he actually did unite humanity in a way that nobody saw coming there's a place in the gospel according to John where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this in John chapter 12 verse 32 and I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He will draw people into his kingdom. Not built on power and oppression and exclusion, but built on his sacrificial love. And, and just to show you how amazing the Bible is, you go a little, while, you go a little further into the New Testament and you come to the book of Acts, And in Acts chapter 2, that was leveled in Genesis chapter 11, that curse of confusion was dramatically overturned. Because the Holy Spirit was poured out, and we read in Acts chapter 2 that the disciples, they got up and they preached the gospel of good news. And what does it say? It says people from all over the world heard it in their own language. They understood it in their own language. 
God's kingdom had come. But the diversity, you see, the, the, the beauty of diverse cultures and diverse languages is maintained. But the unity now comes not through making everyone uniform, but making everyone look at Jesus Christ. The lamb that was slain. And who takes away the sin of the world. Man, who knew Genesis 11 was about all that, eh? And it's actually about more, but we're going to go to the takeaway. What's our takeaway here? Oh, man, this is, there's a lot of directions to go, but I want to direct you to the, to the uh, quote on the front of your bulletin. This is a quote from A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. You know what, just take this quote home and read it once every day for the next week. It's a very, very powerful and deep piece of, of writing. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low, low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at, any, at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Who is God to you? That's the fundamental question. Who is God to you? Is he a powerful human, essentially, that you can attempt to manipulate? Who is God to our church, to Grace Valley? You know, it's easy for churches to slip into paganism too, eh? To, to kind of reduce God. To say that God is only ever an angry God. He's mad at sin. Or, or he's only ever a merciful God who accepts and loves everyone. He's, he's either an, uh, you know, a, a grumpy old man who lives down the street or he's like a benign grandpa with no teeth who just hands out candies all day long. Either way, he's small. He's small. And a God like that, okay, if you're here this morning and you... You have never really encountered God. It might be because the God that you're seeking or the God you're trying to understand is frankly too small. You've tried to understand him as you understand yourself. Or if you've never really been changed by your relationship with God, you've never been really pushed into living outside of your comfort zone or, or never been experienced, you've never experienced love deeper than any human relationship with him or, or, or a sense of, of strength in the midst of suffering that you cannot comprehend is yours because you, you can't understand where it would come from because it's utterly supernatural. Maybe it's because 
You've reduced God to fit your agenda. But here's the thing we learn here, okay? If God loves you and you've been trying to fit God into your agenda, realize he will brick your agenda. He will. He will cause you to abandon your tower, whatever your tower is. And it will hurt like the blazes, I promise you. But, but, on the other side, you'll discover who God really is. And when you discover who God really is, then he really begins to change you. That's it, the Tower of Babel. Let's pray. Father, we are sorry for the ways that we sometimes reduce you and try to manipulate you and control you according to our agendas. We thank, we, we, we are sorry, Father, that we get mad at you when you don't give us what we want. Maybe we've been praying for a long time. Maybe we've been saying sort of deep, deep inside, you know, I've been working really hard for you, God, and yet you're not coming through for me. Father, we ask you to forgive us for our paganism for reducing you and making you tame. Make us, make us like those people in Narnia. Those people in Narnia who anticipated the coming of Aslan and when they were asked about the lion, whether or not he was safe, they said, oh no, no, he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. May the Lord Jesus be that. For all of us, we pray. Amen.